The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. And then we invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3 this morning. Matthew chapter 3. This is one of the best Sundays of the year. I don't know how you say that. They're all good. But uh, this one is particularly special because, as you know, this is Baptism Sunday. This is a Sunday when we have the opportunity to hear of God's incredible grace in the lives of, this morning, six people who are trophies of God's grace. Six people who have been transformed by Christ, six people who have experienced the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, six people whose lives are, are now having moved from death to life, from hell to heaven, from darkness to light, and we get to hear their testimonies this morning. I love baptism testimonies. I have never heard a boring testimony. Have you? Every time someone gets to share about what Christ has done in transforming them, I am riveted by the evidence of the fact that God is still making spiritually dead people alive. That's a miracle. It is only God who can do that. It is only God who can awaken the dead. It is only God who can bring life where there is spiritual death. And that's what baptism is a picture of. Baptism is a picture of those who were once spiritually dead now being spiritually alive. It is the, the picture of a transformed life. It is a, an illustration of the incredible work of God in bringing sinners to Himself. And so we rejoice Every time someone gets to share their testimony, every time someone is baptized, it is a symbol and a picture of the new life that they have in Christ. One person has well captured what believer's baptism is. He says, believer's baptism is a public testimony of one's union with Christ. The act symbolizes a believer's identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. The act is a solemn reminder to the individual and all who observe that there is no turning back. I love that. People who will be baptized here later on in a little while are saying there's no turning back. They're saying, I have been living in sin. My life was once dominated by sin. I once lived under the, the uh, weight of sin. I once lived under the pressure and the judgment of God. And yet now I'm different, I'm transformed, I'm new. Christ has invaded my life, and now there is no turning back. And that's why we love baptisms. We love them dearly because this is an opportunity for the, the grace of God and the glory of God to be put on display. I think it's also critical for us to understand this, and that's why we preach on it once a year, because it's only one of two ordinances for the church. You understand in the Old Testament there were many ordinances, many celebrations, many festivals, many special meals, many special days and ceremonies and all kinds of things that Old Testament saints were required to participate in. And you come to the New Testament and Christ says, now there's only two. There's the Lord's Supper, which is an ongoing reminder of the sacrifice and death of Christ. And there's baptism which is a one-time reminder of our union and our identification with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's it, just two. Just two ordinances that God has given to the church in order for us to remind ourselves what God has done in bringing 
sinners to himself. So we have to celebrate these things, and we get to celebrate these things. And we do so because we realize that baptism is really the defining mark of Christian identity. If you boil the Christian life down and you look at its greatest symbol, one of the greatest symbols, uh, the defining mark of being a believer is baptism. Because baptism is a picture of what has taken place in a person's life. The washing away of going under the water is symbolic of their sin being cleansed. They're coming up out of the water is a picture of their new life in Christ. This is one of the most critical symbols of the work of Christ in a believer's life. In fact, if you were part of the early church, you were known as a baptized one. That's what they referred to you as. If you were saved and you had known Christ as your Lord and Savior, then it was expected that you were baptized. And there's really no such thing in the Scriptures as such a thing as an unbaptized Christian. Scriptures are very complete about their expression of the fact that to be saved is to be baptized. To be baptized is to reflect the salvation that has already taken place. And so baptism is really the defining mark of Christian identity. And because of that, I want to take a moment this morning just to help us kind of appreciate this. And I want to take you to Matthew chapter 3, which is the baptism of Jesus Christ. And I want to take some moments this morning to kind of work through this text with you just to help us see that baptism was something that Christ submitted himself to as well, though for different reasons. You're going to see it was a different kind of baptism than what we are celebrating today. And yet we understand that Christ's baptism was a prefigurement of believer's baptism. What you're going to see displayed today was really prefigured 2,000 years ago when Christ himself submitted to baptism. I want you to follow along as I read Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Matthew says, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness Then he permitted him. And after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. I know we're kind of parachuting into this text this morning. And so let me just kind of set the stage for you, what is taking place. This is the beginning of Christ's ministry. And John the Baptist has been preparing the way for the coming of the Messiah. Look at the beginning of chapter 3, just the first couple verses. Just look up uh, to the beginning of this chapter. He says, Matthew does, in verses 1 to 3, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. This was the ministry of John the Baptist. This is his responsibility. God brought him into existence and gave him the task and the charge of preparing the way for the Messiah. That was his primary ministry. It was to prepare people's hearts. It was to preach that Christ was coming, and it was to urge them to repent of their sin in preparation for his arrival. You can see in verse 2, that was his message. 
repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was a message of repentance. He, he was out in the wilderness across the Jordan preaching repentance, saying, if you're going to welcome the Messiah, then your heart has to be softened and you must repent with a genuine sorrow over your sin as you prepare for his arrival. This was his message. And he preached it over and over and over again. And many people came and were baptized. Look at verse 5. It says, Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. And so his message was a message of repentance, and people were flocking out to John the Baptist, this man who was kind of an obscure individual living out in the wilderness, preaching repentance. And they would travel out there, and, and they heard his message, and they knew they needed forgiveness, and they knew they needed to repent, and they were broken over the fact that they had broken God's law and were under judgment. And they came to the fact that they really realized their true condition was apart from God, they repented. And they submitted to a baptism of repentance. And that's what you need to understand this morning, that, that John's baptism is not believer's baptism. It's not the same thing that we're practicing today. But it was a prefigurement of that, but not the same thing. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. It had a symbolism, and its symbolism was that those who acknowledged and understood the fact that they were under God's judgment and needed cleansing from their sin would submit to this baptism, a baptism that illustrated the fact that they needed spiritual cleansing. They needed renewal. They needed forgiveness. They needed something to transform them from the inside out and have their sins washed away. And that's what made his message so offensive to the Jewish leaders. That's what got his head chopped off six months after this. You see, because if you were a Jewish leader in Judea at that time and you heard the message, you're a sinner, you're under God's wrath, you need to repent, you need spiritual cleansing, you need to be spiritually renewed from the inside out, that message would have struck at the heart of a Jewish leader. Me? I'm not a sinner. (laughs) I'm a Jew. I don't need forgiveness. Look at verse (laughs) 7. When he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Jewish leaders, coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers. Not how you influence friends and have lots of people love you. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance? He knew their hearts. He knew their pride. He knew their spiritual rebellion. He knew that they did not believe that they needed to repent. He knew their religious superiority. He knew that they did not believe that they were under divine wrath. They believed that that was something only reserved for a non-Jew. And so he refused to baptize them. Interestingly, he's going to also try to refuse to baptize Christ, but for different reasons. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Verse 9, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I say to you that these stones, from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. He says, I know what your hearts are, Jewish leaders. You're going to just claim Judaistic heritage. You're going to trace your lineage back to Abraham and say you're good to go because you're a, you're a son of Abraham. We don't need forgiveness. He says, don't you dare do that. 
Because if you do that, Christ can raise up people from rocks who will shout His praise. Judgment was imminent. Verse 10, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. There is judgment coming for those who will not repent. And that judgment comes in the person of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 11. He says, as for me... I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, and his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He says to those Jewish leaders, you mark my words, Christ will come, and if you don't repent, he will bring judgment upon you. Guess what happens next? (laughs) Christ appears. The very one he's been preaching about, the very one he's been preparing the way for, the very one whom he knows will bring cleansing and forgiveness to those who repent and will bring judgment to those who do not, he shows up. Verse 13. What I want to do is I just want to walk through this passage with you for just a few moments, and then I want to circle back and I want to draw some implications for you, okay? So just, just walk with me through, through these five verses, four verses, whatever, on Jesus' baptism. Notice verse 13 first. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan coming to John to be baptized by him. Luke tells us that at this point, Jesus is 30 years old. 30. 30 years old, has lived in relative obscurity up to this point, and suddenly, he appears. John obviously recognized him because he didn't question who he was, or at least Matthew doesn't indicate he does. He must have recognized him, and yet, this is the only recorded incident in Scripture that we know of that Christ and John the Baptist ever met. Think about this. They're they're related, they're relatives, they're they're second cousins. And so John's mother is Elizabeth, Jesus' mother, earthly mother is Mary. They were cousins, which means they are second cousins, John and Jesus are. And likely they would have known about each other. Without a doubt, Mary would have told Elizabeth, we know that she did, way back in Luke chapter 1 when Mary went to visit Elizabeth and they spent time together, three months talking about their sons. And so I guess technically you could say John and Jesus met. Sort of. John would have known about his second cousin, Jesus. He would have known what he was like. He would have known about him being the Messiah. But the fact that he, Christ, grew up in Galilee and John grew up in Judea, far apart from each other, may have evidence of the fact that they had no really ongoing acquaintance with one another. They may not have known each other very well at all. And so you fast forward 30 years... John recognizes him somehow. In fact, over in John chapter 1, verse 33, it says, I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel. I came baptizing in water. He technically didn't recognize him until the Spirit of God came down upon him, but somehow he knew that this man was unique, this man was distinct. Perhaps he knew even at this moment he was the Messiah. And so Jesus appears. 
Verse 13 says he arrived from Galilee. Mark tells us he came from Nazareth, his hometown in Galilee. And he came here to appear before John to be baptized by him. He came for that very reason, for that very purpose, to be baptized by Christ. And John says, no. Look at verse 14. But John tried to prevent him saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? John protested. John understood what was about to take place. John understood who this man was in some fashion. He, he understood he was likely the Messiah, and he understood that the Messiah would be perfect, sinless, spotless, without any sin that he needed to repent of. He would have understood him to be the, the perfect Lamb of God who would lay down his life for the sins of the world. He, he understood that. And so this is one of the greatest testimonies in Scripture to the sinlessness of Christ. No sin. None. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. No sin. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. This is Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, without spot, without sin, without any moral blemish whatsoever. And so John says, me? Baptize you? He tries to shut this down. He, he doesn't want this to happen. He did not want to do it. He protested. He objected. He, he tried to stop it from happening. It doesn't seem right. He does not want this baptism to proceed. It doesn't make any sense to him. In fact, the Greek in verse 14 says he continued to repeatedly try to stop him. Ongoing, continued effort by John to stop him. Literally, he kept trying to prevent him from being baptized by him. I, I'm, I'm the sinner, you're the sinless one, and you want me to baptize you when you should be the one baptizing me. See the dilemma? He didn't want to. And so it's very interesting to me that on the one hand, at the early part of this chapter, he did not want to baptize the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Jewish leaders because of their sinfulness, and now he doesn't want to baptize Christ because of his sinlessness. Interesting. On the one hand, he did not want to baptize the Pharisees and the Sadducees because they were totally unworthy of his baptism, and yet on the other hand, he was reluctant to baptize Jesus because he was too worthy of his baptism. Tremendous. But Jesus prevailed. Jesus insisted that he be baptized. And verse 15 tells us why. But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Notice that he brings John into this. He doesn't just say, it's fitting for me to fulfill all righteousness. He says, it's fitting for us, meaning you and I. John, you need to do this, and I need to be a part of this, and we need to do this together. It's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. It was necessary. It had to happen. 
It was a requirement. It was fitting. It was proper. It was necessary. This had to take place. It was necessary for Jesus to be baptized, and it was necessary for him to be baptized by John. Now, what does this mean when it says it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness? Matthew doesn't tell us. Jesus doesn't tell us. But certainly John understood what this would have meant, and Jesus clearly had an understanding of what he he means here. But John doesn't tell us, and Jesus doesn't tell us, and Matthew doesn't tell us. And so I want to give you in just a moment some some reasons what we think this is and, and some ways in which Christ actually fulfilled all righteousness. We'll come back to that in just a moment. So what happened? Look at the end of verse 15. He permitted him. John permitted Christ to be baptized by him. And I want you just for a moment to to think about the amazing irony in this situation. Here's the sinful man, John the Baptist, who is engaged in a baptism of repentance, who goes and baptizes the sinless one. What would that have been like? The one who needed a baptism of repentance himself baptized the very one who had no need of it. Must have been a monumental moment in John's heart as he realizes this is the Messiah. I love what happened next. Look at verse 16. If there's any doubt that this should happen, if there's any question as to whether heaven is on board with this, if there's any question as to whether this was God's will or not, look at verse 16. It says, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him, and behold, a voice out of the heavens said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased." As if this is not tremendous enough, the other two members of the Trinity appear. That they appear at the very moment Christ comes out of the water, the Spirit appears, the voice of God the Father is heard, and suddenly the entire Trinity is present. By the way, some people insist that there is no scriptural proof for the Trinity. The word Trinity doesn't occur in the Bible, and so how do we know that the Trinity is true? How do we know that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all equal members of the Godhead, yet distinct in their personality? Where do you go in Scripture that the word Trinity doesn't even occur there? You don't need the word Trinity for it to occur. It's right here. God the Son's being baptized, God the Spirit is approving, and God the Father announces His approval. It's right here. You want to defend the Trinity? Go right here. All three persons of the Godhead present at this monumental event. Well, that's the account. What does it mean in verse 15 that he came to fulfill all righteousness? In what way was Christ's baptism a fulfillment of all righteousness? And I want to give you four ways in which that's the case. I want to give you four ways that the baptism of Christ was a fulfillment of righteousness. And I think you'll see that this really kind of sets the stage for our baptisms that we'll celebrate here in just a moment. Very quickly, we won't take a lot of time on this, but number one, the first way in which Christ's baptism was a fulfillment of all righteousness was that it marked the beginning of His public ministry. It marked the beginning of His public ministry. 
This is where it starts. As I just said, Christ spent the first 30 years of his life in relative obscurity. He, he, he was born, as we know, in Bethlehem. We, we know about his flight to Egypt to escape Herod when he was young, and we know about one incident when he was 12 when his parents lost him. Imagine that, you lose the Messiah. They lost Christ. They weren't sure where he was. And so they went back to find him, and Luke chapter 2 tells us that he's there in the temple preaching and teaching. That's all we know. That is all we know about the first 30 years of Christ's life. That's it. Birth, flight, travel to Jerusalem, that's it. We know nothing else. Presumably, he worked with his father as a carpenter. He lived a quiet existence in Nazareth with his half-brothers and sisters, but he lived off the radar of the Jewish leaders. He did not engage himself in the crowds and the masses. He never taught. He never performed miracles. He had zero public ministry whatsoever for 30 years. And so we know nothing about him. Until now. And it all changes. And he shows up in the, the publicest, most public manner possible. He comes fully onto the stage of redemption and he wants everyone to know he is the Messiah and Christ is here to accomplish redemption. And John the Baptist, the one who has prepared the way for the coming of this king, is now going to inaugurate his ministry by his baptism. This is where it all begins. This is what launches the ministry of Christ that lasts for three years and that would ultimately culminate in his death on the cross for our sins. This is how it begins. And it was important for John the Baptist because it was important for him to be recognized publicly as the forerunner. And John the Baptist has been saying, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. The Messiah is coming. Prepare your hearts. He's on his way. Boom, he's here. And he announces it with his baptism. What a tremendous verification of the ministry of John the Baptist. What a tremendous verification, coronation of the person of Jesus Christ. This is the one they've been waiting for, and he's here. So when Jesus says back in verse 15, it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness, I think that's partially what he means. It's right for my ministry to begin now. It's right for me to publicly launch my ministry to save sinners from their sin. So that's one of the ways. One of the ways that Christ's baptism fulfilled all righteousness. Number two, here's the second way that Christ's baptism fulfilled all righteousness. Number two, it demonstrated divine approval of Him as Messiah. It demonstrated divine approval of him as Messiah. This really was a a coronation. This really was a a divine approval by heaven itself. This was a, a divine affirmation by the Father, by the Spirit, involving the Son. And you might say that this was a heavenly verification of Christ and his ministry. This is the full weight of the Godhead brought to bear upon Christ. This is the stamp of approval upon the ministry of Christ. This was an authentication from heaven that this is the one who will bring redemption. So verse 16, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove. And lighting 
on him. I, I love this. As soon as one comes up, another comes down. As soon as Christ comes out of the water, it is the, the Spirit of God coming down on him in the form of a dove, as a dove. Notice it doesn't say it came in a dove. Listen, you need to understand the Holy Spirit is not a dove, okay? I've seen symbols and all kinds of different emblems trying to reflect who the Spirit is and they, they use a dove. I understand that because there's a connection here in Matthew 3 between a dove and the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit's not a dove. He's a person. And I want you to notice that in verse 16, it says he descended as a dove. And so the point here is, is that John or Matthew is trying to communicate the fact that he, he, the dove didn't come crashing down. You ever seen a dove land? They don't come crashing down like a turkey. We have turkeys that fly in our backyard and they look like this flying cannonball and that's not how he came down. You ever see a dove? They're light. They're delicate. They're gentle. There's a gracefulness to them as they fly and as they land. And that's exactly what he's saying here. He, he came down with the gentleness and the graciousness of a dove. The more important reason, though, is not how he landed or how he came, but why he came. You need to understand that in the Old Testament, it was prophesied that the Spirit of God would inhabit the Messiah. He would mediate his power through the Messiah. L listen to some of these Old Testament references. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2 says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Do you understand? The ministry of the Messiah would be mediated in the power of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. The, the Messiah would have to come and would have to operate and would have to minister in the power of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 61, verse 1, says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. These are prophecies of the fact that the Messiah would come, and when He comes, He will come with the power and the authority and the ministry of the Holy Spirit upon Him. And so if He's going to launch a ministry publicly, then it has to be launched with the affirmation of the Spirit of God, because that's what the Old Testament predicted. And so that's exactly what you see here. The Spirit of God descends on Christ as a public affirmation of His ministry. Not only that, look at verse 17. Behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Matthew doesn't tell us who it is, but it's obvious who it is. It's the voice of God the Father. And that exact phrase was repeated a couple years later on the Mount of Transfiguration as, as the veil is pulled back and the disciples got to behold the beauty of Christ and these exact same words were spoken by the, the Father at that moment, this is my beloved Son in whom I am 
well-pleased. It's my beloved son, a statement of deity. This is my beloved son, a statement of relationship, of intimacy, of of closeness between the members of the Godhead. And this is a, a statement of the fact that God is approving of the work of Christ. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. A statement of affirmation of his work, of his personhood, of his ministry, of what he's about to accomplish. You put all that together. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all present at this moment which constitutes a divine affirmation of the work of Christ. Heaven approves. Heaven approves of Christ. Number three, the third way in which Christ's baptism fulfilled all righteousness was that it identified him with sinners. It identified him with sinners. And I think this gets to the heart of that phrase, he fulfilled all righteousness. What, what does that really mean? I, I think this gets to the rear, very essence of what it means that he fulfilled that righteousness. And what you have in the baptism of Christ is Christ identifying with sinners. It's tremendous. If the Messiah is going to come... He's going to come and offer righteousness to those who are not righteous. This is our problem. This is your problem. If you're here today, listen to me. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, you have a righteousness problem. Every one of us, before we come to Christ, has a righteousness problem. You have to be perfectly righteous to get into heaven. That's the standard. You understand that? God doesn't grade on a curve. You don't kind of get a pass for doing mostly good things. Please understand this. You have to be perfectly righteous to get into heaven. You're not. I'm not. No one has ever been. And so the Messiah, Christ, would come to bring the very righteousness that we are in need of. He would come to offer his perfections and give it to those who are in need of it. And so he comes to do that. He comes to fulfill all righteousness by identifying with sinners, becoming like them in a sense, so that he can provide the very thing that we're lacking. This is the doctrine of justification. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the great exchange. When you come to Christ, you receive his righteousness, and he takes your sin. You exchange your sin for his righteousness, so that when God sees you now, he sees you as perfect, bearing the righteousness of Christ. How's that going to happen? That's only going to happen if a Messiah comes, a Savior comes, and identifies himself with the very people who are in need of righteousness. And so that's what's happening here. That's why he's submitting to a baptism of repentance. He doesn't have to repent. He has no sin to repent of. He has no need to repent of anything in his life that was sinful. He's perfect. He's holy. He's sinless. And yet he comes to submit himself to a baptism of repentance in order to identify himself with our humanity. It's tremendous. 
if you need a visual picture of the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ, this is it. The Savior submitting to a doctrine or a baptism of repentance when he didn't need to. Isaiah 53, verse 1 says, As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By the knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he bears their iniquities. You understand that's what Christ came to do? He came to bear your iniquities. The very next verse in Isaiah 53, verse 12, says, Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Christ had to be numbered with the transgressors. He had to be identified with them. He had to be associated with them. He had to become like them in a sense. And so not only does he become a man and enter this world and live a life here on this planet, he also identifies himself in a baptism of repentance that he didn't have to submit to, but he does in order so that he can redeem sinners like you and me. Absolutely tremendous. His baptism was not propitiatory, meaning he didn't actually pay for sins here, but certainly this was the inaugural event that showed that he would eventually do that. So Christ had to be baptized, and he had to be baptized by John because John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. And if he's going to identify himself with sinners, and if he's going to provide his righteousness to them, then he's got to fully identify with sinners, and he does so in this baptism of repentance. And beloved, that's what makes baptism so special. Christ, in his baptism, identified with us, listen, so that 2,000 years later we can engage in a baptism that will help us to identify with him. You see the connection? Which brings us to reason number four. Or way number four in which Christ fulfilled all righteousness in His baptism. Number four, it prefigured the significance of believers' baptism. It prefigured the significance of believers' baptism. And here's where I want to make the connection with what we're doing today. What we are doing today is a baptism that identifies a believer with the person and work of Christ. A person who is baptized today as a Christian is saying, I'm going to identify myself with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's what we're celebrating today in baptism. But you need to understand that 2,000 years ago, that wasn't the meaning. It was a different meaning. As I said, it was a baptism of repentance, and yet that prefigured what we're doing today. Believers' baptism actually altered John's baptism. John's baptism was altered by the cross. John's baptism was altered by the resurrection. John's baptism was changed by believers' baptism or through believers' baptism to move from a baptism of repentance to a baptism of identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. See, how do you know that? Because if you go to the last two verses of Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, what does he say? Go make disciples of all nations, what? Baptizing them. What baptism does Matthew have in mind there? The 
Christ have in mind? It's believer's baptism. Because by that point, Christ has been raised from the dead. He died, he's been raised back to life, and he says that's the meaning then of baptism, is to, to celebrate your identification with the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we know that because as you read through the book of Acts, where the Great Commission was fulfilled, every single baptism in the book of Acts was done as an identification with the believer's relationship with Christ in his death and his burial and his resurrection. This was the case for Peter when he says in Acts chapter 2, repent and each one of you be baptized. This was the case of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 when he came to Christ and wanted to be baptized. This was the case in Acts chapter 9 when Paul came to Christ and he was baptized of Lydia in Acts 16 and the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. They came to Christ, they were baptized in accordance with their identification with the person and work of Christ. So, John's baptism and the baptism that Christ engaged in here 2,000 years ago was a prefigurement of the very baptisms that we're celebrating today. By the way, the mode matters. The mode matters. I've heard people today say the mode does not matter. It doesn't matter whether you sprinkle. It doesn't matter whether you pour. It doesn't matter where you immerse. It doesn't matter if you just get wet somehow. No, beloved, it matters. It matters, and the reason it matters is because only immersion fits the meaning of baptism. Every baptism in the Bible is by immersion. Do you understand that? Every single one of them. They're always by immersion because it is immersion that, that pictures the truths that need, to be, that need to be communicated. And in John's case, the picture that needed to be communicated was a complete washing away of sin and transformation by Christ who will forgive that. And today, 2,000 years later, the meaning is a, a, a doing away with the old life and a bringing in of the new life, not through baptism, but what baptism symbolizes, the work of Christ. I think you can see that even here in our text. Look at verse 16. After Jesus was baptized, he came up immediately from the water. To me, just a simple reading of that text means he was all the way in. I read an article this week that was trying to prove that maybe he was just standing kind of ankle deep and you know, John grabbed something and poured it over his head. And I, I don't think that's faithful to the text. I think of simple, clear reading of the text. He came up immediately from the water, meaning he was in it all the way. If you go over to the parallel passage in Mark chapter 1, Verse 10 says, immediately coming up out of the water. Coming up out of the water. Again, the picture is that of immersion. And I think you can see that even here in this chapter. Look up in verse 6. People were being baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. I think the implication here is very straightforward. They went in the river all the way. There was an immersion there. In fact, the word baptism means immersion. It means to dip. It means to put under the water. It means to drown. Don't worry. We got you today. That won't happen. The mode matters, friends. If you go over to John chapter 3, verse 23, it says, John was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was much water there. Why did John go there if he needed lots of water when all he had to do was pour? It doesn't make sense. The mode matters. 
Listen to the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. I love this. He ordered, after he had been preached the gospel to by Philip, Philip explains to him from Isaiah chapter 53 about Christ and the Messiah and what he did and how he died on the cross for sinners. And the Ethiopian eunuch repented. He placed his trust in Christ. And then it says he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The mode matters. He recognized that immersion is what would illustrate his union with Christ. And that's exactly what Jesus is illustrating here as well in his baptism of repentance. And that's what we're illustrating here today in the baptism of believers who are repenting of their sins, placing their faith and trust in Christ, and are therefore being illustrated by that fact with immersion. So it's an incredible text. Christ identified himself with sinners in John's baptism so we could be identified with him in believers' baptism. And that's what these six people are saying today. They're saying, I once was lost. I was once under sin's condemnation. I have placed my trust in Christ. I have repented, and now I am a new person. I'm a new creation in Christ, and I want to publicly testify to that fact by obedience in the waters of baptism. And so for those of you who are being baptized today, we rejoice with you. We celebrate with you the amazing, incredible work that God has done in your heart. And if you're here today and you have been baptized since coming to faith in Christ, celebrate your conversion. Celebrate what God has done in your life. Remember His grace to you. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ Beloved, let these testimonies be an encouragement to you to embrace Christ as your Savior. Recognize you need cleansing. Recognize your sin puts you under the wrath of God and recognize what Christ has done. And if you're here this morning and you you know Christ but you've never been baptized, I would urge you to seriously consider the example of Christ. He gave us an example to follow. And if you're here today and you are a follower of Christ, you know Christ, but you've never been obedient to that command, then we strongly encourage you to consider the example that Christ has given for us. So, in a moment, we'll celebrate with testimonies and we'll go and publicly witness these baptisms. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for example of our dear Savior. We thank you for the fact that Christ himself submitted to a baptism which he did not need to in order that he could identify himself with us who were in great need of forgiveness. So Lord, we come to celebrate today with those who have repented of their sins, who have placed their faith and trust in you, and who are desirous of being obedient to the command you give us to be baptized. We thank you for the work you've done in redeeming them, and we pray that you'll encourage our hearts and strengthen them as they in just a moment come to give their testimonies. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for the great grace that you've shown us in the person and work of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.
You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.